Digital 410 proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your hosts, Don Abernathy, Jeff Copsetta, and Henry Sledge. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. And joining us tonight, we're throwing it back. We're going back to the way back. We're going back to, like, oh, I don't know, around episode 87. We're going back to the old days when it was just me, Jeff, with the addition of his new killer mustache. I've only seen that mustache on you one time, friend. I think you're doing like your uh, your impression of, oh crap, I just went completely blank. Um, the old movie star, what the hell? Uh, help me out here, I went completely blank. Uh, are you thinking Billy Zane? No, like 1930s, 1940s. Oh, the, the, Clark Gable? Clark Gable, yeah, you're pulling your Clark Gable yeah. mustache. I can't believe I completely just floundered on that one, but that's what happens when I'm multitasking. How are you, friend? It's been a while. It has been a while, I'm, and I'm sorry about that. I'm excited about tonight, though. It sucks that we're not going to have Henry here, but I think, like you said, we'll, we can go back to the old days, and I think we can take care of business. You know, if things start going like this, there's going to be rumors spreading around. <laughs> <laughs> I think Jeff and Henry are the same person. They're never on the show <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> one guy smiles, one guy doesn't. Yeah. Uh, yeah, why don't you start smiling more? Henry smiles all the damn time, just blinds you with his teeth. You just can't say, okay, and uh, we get it, Henry, enough. <laughs> you have great dental work. So uh, I guess I should ask you off this air, something kind of, you have a kind of exciting announcement. Are we ready to go public with that? On? I can't ask you if you're not ready to go public with it. We're live. The family thing. The family thing? The thing you texted me about the other day, and I said, ask you how other people think about it you said mixed emotions but yada 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 okay i'm drawing a blank huh i'm drawing a blank go huh? public with it no worries we'll, we'll we'll move forward so uh, henry will be back next week he uh he has some work related stuff he has to do tonight which we all get you know the hard part about doing the show on a weeknight is trying to get it all lined up where everybody's work can you know kind of conjoins and everything works out but um we got an interesting show for you tonight. We're going to get into some uh, topics. You know, we often do the What You're Reading segment, but we're going to go a little deeper in that tonight. But before we do, as we often do, because sometimes this train just keeps on running off the tracks like no brakes are intact. So before we get on down the road, let's go ahead and get the mail call out of the way. Hopefully Jeff is ready with his newly refurbished laptop. <laughs> right. Okay, so this week's mail call reads like this. We'll try to make this quick. Henry, I too have read Ian Toll's trilogy, and it's such an amazing set. One of the things you both touched on was the carrier group's step to the kamikaze threat. The use of destroyers as picket ships equipped with radar to receive the threat before it could reach the heart of the fleet had to be no easy task for sailors, as they were basically bait for the kamikazes. Ian touches in his book on how so many of these kamikazes would just swarm and target these picket ships, thinking they were more than what they really were. One of these such ships is now a museum ship here in Charleston, South Carolina. The USS Laffey, DD-724, nicknamed the ship that would not die. She participated in both the Normandy invasion and the invasion of Okinawa, where she earned her name. While serving picket duty on April 16, 1945, Laffey survived despite being da badly damaged by four bombs, six kamikaze crashes, and strafing fire that killed 32 and wounded 71. 
Assistant Communications Officer Lieutenant Frank Manson asked Captain Becton if he thought they'd have to abandon ship, to which he snapped, No, I'll never abandon ship as long as I have a single gun will fire. Becton did not hear a nearby lookout softly say, And if I can find one man to fire it. It's a wonderful ship to tour. Also with her is CV-10, the Yorktown, whose air groups assisted in the sinking uh, of the Yamato. If you ever make it this way, please check them out. Now, lastly, if you need a recommendation for your next read, check out Days of Steel Rain, the epic story of a World War II vengeance ship in the year of the Kamikaze by Brent E. Jones. It follows one ship from its keel being laid to being crewed, trained, and eventually being in the thick of the Kamikaze attacks in the Pacific. was a great read and one that follows one ship, which is unique. As always, keep up the great show. DJ, uh, to which uh, Henry replied... Uh, great email. I actually have a signed copy of Steel Rain, uh, and Brent sent it to me last year. So many thanks to DJ for this email. Henry's one step ahead. As he always says, hopefully your uh, your internet holds up with us. It's getting a little rainy and cloudy out there in Texas way. Um, it's going pretty little solid, but you're, you're speckling there a little bit. Real quick before we get to the books, I think on the last three or four episodes we've brought up the the fact, the question, the um, the puzzle really of how much can we expect battlefields from 1942, 43, 44, 45, 39? How long can we as historians and um, World War II aficionados expect modern day folk to deal with it, not produce on it, not to have progress? In their areas, because you know, as we Henry and I talked, I think Jeff, you're part of the show. In the Pacific, for example, and a lot of those small islands and atolls, that's asking a lot. Hey, don't don't do anything with that, you know, that big big field over there that you could possibly build on, do this and that, because it's a a battlefield that we have, you know, we'd love to go down there and check out. But then you have over in Europe, we're not quite so condensed, but it's still an issue. And if anybody's ever lived all, I don't know, down next to a school where, you know, you have to deal with parent pickup lines or maybe you live next to a, a park that's busy or a golf course or whatever, oftentimes we get annoyed by large groups of people always showing up. We're all familiar with the island as depicted on uh, Band of Brothers. And we're all familiar with European battleground tours. You know, the famous photo of uh, Major Dick Winter standing in front of the arches. Familiar with that one? This, oh, yeah. is, this is from the Eng English version of a Paris website entitled The Difficult Reconciliation of the Memory of the World War II with Mass Tourism in the Netherlands. Residents of the estate portrayed in the TV series Band of Brothers produced by Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks will install a fence and charge photos sorry, charged for photos and tourists in order to stem the flow of tourists around their homes. They have the famous picture above, side by side with the Band of Brothers recreation of that. In uniform, with his helmet resting on his side and a slight smile on his face, this shows U.S. Major Dick Winters posted in 1944 under the archways at the entrance of the estate in East Netherlands. The complex is called, I'm going to destroy this, and I apologize to my Netherlands listeners, Schluendorf. And it is located in the village of Elist in uh, 
The Allies' troops called the area the island, and the fighting there lasted 198 days during World War II. Winters and his men, members of the Easy Company, transcended the realm of military memory thanks to the television series released in 2001, Band of Brothers, co-produced, as we said before, by uh, filmmaker Steven Spielberg and actor Tom Hanks. The British actor Damien Lewis played Winters, and the image of him posing in the same place as the U.S. officer has become so famous over time that the owners of the property are going to install a fence and charge for photos to stem the flow of tourism. The archway leading to the area is still in place, but both sides are within the grounds. They are private homes and with families whose daily lives are interrupted by crowds of curious onlookers in the search of vestiges of the past. Those who come here tend to come from other war museums, and many are fans of the series who tour all over the war sites mentioned in the show, from Normandy to the Bavarian Alps. Not all of them come from the United States, however. Some come from Brazil, South Africa, Italy, and many other countries. They come to see the room where Winter slept in which he wrote his reports on the war. The residents of the area, however, want to strike a balance between preserving the past and their privacy. In an email, they explained their decision to, apt, um, sorry, to adapt some restrictions. Quote, we are aware of the history in the site, and visitors are permitted, but in order to make the complex accessible and to pay for its maintenance, certain agreements will have to be reached. Visits, sorry, visits and photos will have to be paid for, for the, in the near future. Tickets can be purchased on their website for an extra fee. Visitors will be able to take photos with the original Jeep Willie MB vehicle from the period and a life-size image of Dick Winters. The owners of the estate will be the only ones to charge for the pictures, uh, confirm the city. And so, you know, that's kind of a tough thing. You know, they understand that this is historic. They understand that it's famous, but they also understand that they want to get up on a Saturday and not have 38 people standing out in front of their house talking loudly and being excited to be there. I can kind of understand it. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of, when you were reading that, it was making me think about the efforts uh, from like Teddy Roosevelt building our National Park Service, you know, kind of that uh, you, you have this, you know, a fact that comes your way that you, you're now cognizant of that there is an issue. And if we don't, you know, step in and create a plan, uh, that issue is just going to get worse and things are just going to get trampled. And I don't know if a program like that even exists that protects places like this. I mean, I know we protect national monuments and, and I guess like certain battlefields, right? You're not going to have, uh, there's not going to be a shopping center in the middle of Gettysburg. Yeah. That's not going to happen. Um, but just a place like that uh, in the Netherlands, that's maybe not like this national battlefield, but just this, um, this thing from pop culture and the movie genre that now it's become so famous because of one incredible miniseries, man, I, that's a, that's an outstanding question. I don't know. How, how do you curb that? I don't know. Well, let's put it in perspective. Let's say you have a nice swath of land out in Texas. You know, it's, you know, it's pretty decent. You got a little more yard to mow than I do. I can, you know, lay flat and, you know, probably hit my neighbor's house with a ball bat. Um, but let's just say that your house is built in all, I don't know, 1830s. And at some point, some famous Texas ranger lived in your house. And let's say there was a fo famous photo of him out at the end of your driveway or something, or, you know, <laughs> out by your, you know, at the end of your front stoop. And every 
other day you and your kids wake up to go about your daily lives and there's 38 to 50 people standing on your front yard taking pictures. What do you do? It's one thing if it's like you're saying a national park out in the middle of an open field, but when it's literally outside your bedroom window, perfect example, the famous house in, I think, what is it? San Diego, San Francisco from the Goonies. Uh, the previous owners who had it got tired of all the Goonies fans showing up, wanting to take pictures of the house, waking them up every morning that they, they put up signs and they finally sold it. And the new owners like, Hey, come on in. I'm a Goonies fan too. But I don't know. I think after a while it history or not, I think after a while you're just like, can I please just sleep in on a Saturday just once? You know, it's, it's a, the thing that got a little weird as I was reading a story, I, I get the fence and the photos, but and the Jeep even, but when you're, when you're pulling out the cardboard cutout, that's when I'm starting to scratch my head and say, okay, wait a minute. The, got me with the Jeep. I understand the fence, but go ahead and put the cardboard cutout back in your kid's room. We don't need that. Now it's starting to turn into a little bit of a, you know, a real tourist trap. I miss something you'd see on Route 66 back in the day. Oh, here's, here's Dorothy's house. Come get a picture with this cardboard cutout of Toto. <laughs> like, no, <nah>, I'm good. <laughs> you can take the cardboard back inside. It actually, you know, it makes me think of a story uh, from somebody I met that she lived in Colleen, the house behind where Elvis lived when he was stationed there. Oh, boy. Their backyards touched, right? They had a fence between them. And, of course, Elvis, you know, because it was like that everywhere, wherever he went, you know, he couldn't go in his front door when he got done with duty, you know, at the end of the day. So she was a little girl at the time. But she said, just every day like clockwork, um, she said she'd be sitting on the ground watching TV. Elvis comes through the front door, runs right in front of her, says hi real quick through the living room. Mom's in the kitchen. You know, stops, grabs a peanut butter butter banana sandwich. (laughs) Right. You know, out the back porch door, goes through the backyard, hops his fence and sneaks into his backyard. Every day, that was his life. And yeah, I mean, that's that's what happens when you reach a lot of people and people want a piece of, of this stuff. And um, I, I think it. That's why living history is so important. I think that's why these reenactments are so important, um, because it's just another vehicle, you know, besides books, besides movies, but just another way um, to to keep the memory alive. And you just gotta trust the masses. I guess that they're not just gonna destroy this stuff. Yeah, but what if they what if they step on your wife's rhododendrons every day? <laughs> it's like, come on, stay off the stay off the flowers. <laughs> you know, Elvis being the type of guy he was with the reputation he had, I wouldn't be surprised at some point he paid for their mortgage. Just you know, I'm oh, yeah, <laughs> walking yeah. through your house every day. This place is worth five and a half grand. I, I'll take care of it. Right. You know, <laughs> adjusting for inflation. Um, we're going to do some books here, and, but I saw a storyline coming across my newsfeed today after Jeff suggested we talk about books. Are you familiar with the book called All the Light We Can See? No. Well, apparently, they're turning it into a miniseries, and uh, YouTube just recently released another trailer. Um, the Netflix, I'm sorry, Netflix has released the latest teaser trailer of All the Light We Can See, a World War II set limited series based on the 2014 Pulitzer Prize winning novel showing off the chemistry, drama, and battles that helped make the source uh, sources so popular. Um, this goes on to say, but yeah, I'm excited. apparently there's a new Straight to Netflix um, World War II series coming out, and it looks like it may be just based off of the thumbnail in the trailer. I didn't get a chance to watch it, but it looks like it might be more the interesting side that we kind of see with uh, Generation War. Did you ever see that, even though it was all in German? 
If you guys haven't seen it, go check out Generation War. It's the story of World War II through the eyes of five German friends who grew up, obviously, in Germany and has the war impacted them. Pre-war, during the war and post-war, you know, obviously the young men got scripted into the military. They had to go fight. It wasn't a choice. It's not like they were not youth running around. But you can kind of see one of the boys, you know, he really is resistant to it. He kind of takes on the hate. I'm here. I got to do what I have to do, but I don't buy into this. And then one of the other one kind of buys into the, you know, the fanaticism of it. And then you see how it affects the women in the home front. And it's a really, it's often been quoted as being the German equivalent of Band of Brothers. Um, it, it's an interesting, like, 12 part miniseries. It is in German, so you got to turn your subtitles on, unless you like voiceovers. I don't like voiceovers. I'd rather read the subtitles. But if you haven't seen Generation War, check it out. It's It's very interesting to see how. To get the per, the view of the war and the impact from the German civilian, thus being drafted into the war, getting their aspect of it and seeing how yeah. it affect them. And one of the one of the friends is a well known actress, and uh, kind of show how she's kind of getting sucked into the propaganda machine. How they're starting to try to use her for you know spreading their nonsense. But yeah, it's, it looks like this this uh, series is going to be kind of interesting and it's going to be look from the german side of things yep the mm. the story the new series is called all the light we can see so that's something we can check out but uh without any further ado let me ask you do you want to get in the books first or show and tell uh let's do books first okay let's go books it was your idea so we both <laughs> got three books wow i saw your post on facebook look like you got about nine but um, go ahead and pick book number one. You can do book one, and then I'll do one, and then we'll go back and forth, and we'll call it as we see it if things start to run a little long. Real yeah, quick, yeah. shout out to Jeff Gibson and uh, Jay Rock are both hanging out on YouTube, and um, we appreciate their comments. And uh, yes, yeah, uh, looks like Jay Rock said he's heard of it. I think he's t- referring to I don't know if he's referring to the book or the miniseries, but yeah, Jay Jay Rocker, uh, no, JT Rocker said he's heard of it, but yeah. Just uh, shout out to you guys hanging out with us. There's more people watching, but only a few people talking. But on to book number one with Jeff Copsetta. All right. Yeah, book number one. So like we said before we went on, we wanted to talk a few books that we maybe not uh, haven't talked about a whole lot. And I chose I chose five, uh, five or six maybe. Um, to me, what I thought were really good war memoirs. Besides, of course, we talked with the old breed on here, right? Uh Harry Crosby's, you know, a wing and a prayer. Some of those really like the biggest hard hitters. I wanted to choose some of the other ones. And and I think half of them, I actually met the author. So um, that always kind of makes it more of a personal, you know, connection for me. So the first one I wanted to mention was The Man Who Flew the Memphis Bell. Um, this is Bob Morgan's um, memoir um, and what it was like. Just, you know, I, you guys know me, right? I can't get enough Memphis Bell, but I'll be honest, this one, he's just as good a writer as I think he was a pilot. And um, it's just kind of an intimate look on how he grew up. The guy, so, you know, from Asheville, North Carolina, but partied at like the Vanderbilt's house. So like came up with slightly, I guess we could say slightly privileged, had a little bit of money. Apparently the Morgans did, I guess that furniture business did pretty well and had some pretty affluent friends. So just seeing that kind of lifestyle, you really learn how it bled into, I mean, this guy was going to be famous. Like you just, 
reading the story before he's flying the bell, like this guy just has that thing, <laughs> you know, and, and it just kind of, to me, it really spawned from the way he grew up. You learn a lot about how these guys trained, um, a unique factor that, you know, that we used here in America where we didn't take military trained pilots for their first flight with the cadets. We were actually using, we were contracting civilians with pilots licenses, you know, crop duster type guys, old barnstormers, things like that. Because if this cadet crashes this aircraft, you technically don't lose two assets now or, or military aircraft. You lose a civilian and you lose a cadet, which is still in essence, still a civilian until they get their pilot's license as a cadet, you're not technically in the air corps yet. So I thought that was kind of an interesting thing. So when you, we never really thought about it, but it makes perfect sense. A civilian knows a civilian pilot, Pan Am pilot, whatever they, a lot of those became captains, but in, in your situation, uh, you're talking about making them a, a training pilot. Yes. They know how to fly, but if you were to take a, Regular pilot, you know, a, a, a Air Corps pilot who actually has the experience, and as you said, they crash. You're losing a very expensive asset who's already gone through training, who maybe perhaps has some experience under their wing. No pun intended. So it would make perfect sense that obviously you don't want to lose either one of them. But if if you had to choose, you want to lose the one who knows how to fly or the one who knows how to fly plus fight. Exactly. So I thought that was an interesting aspect. And it's just his, uh, you learn a lot about the crew, the intimacy with his crew, especially his um, relationship with his tail gunner, uh, Johnny Quinlan. Uh, Johnny's one of the few that actually made all 25 missions with Robert Morgan. You know, it's not these same 10 guys made all 25 missions, right? You learn all that, right? There's no, and I think I mentioned this before, like there's really no superlative that we think of about the Memphis Bell, that's actually true. It's like not the first plane to fly 25 missions, not the first crew. He's not even the first pilot in the 8th Air Force to fly 25 missions. Uh, ironically, it was his co-pilot, and he was only his co-pilot for the first few missions. And then Captain Varenas got his own plane, and in the 90s, records finally showed that he flew 25 missions before Bob Morgan and comes home totally in the shadow of Morgan and his crew, but who cares, right? Um, yeah, I guess so that part would depend on the ego of the person that it's happening to. If it's somebody who wants to just go about their life in privacy, then they wouldn't care. But if you are much like half the people living in 2023, <laughs> you'd be upset they're not mentioning it in the papers. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't, you know, people and things were different back then. And uh, one another facet I thought was interesting was just kind of that oxymoron of military intelligence and why they do what they do um you know when when they when the crew came home and they were done with the bond tour um you know morgan goes back and he sees a shiny new b-29 and flies another 25 missions over in the pacific in fact he led the first firebombing raid on tokyo in november 44 in his b-29 dauntless Dottie. well he wanted his tail gunner he wanted johnny quinlan and uh the military told him you know, sure, absolutely. They pulled Quinlan and they put him in a B-29 squadron, not Bob Morgan's squadron, not in his airplane. <laughs> and that B-29 was shot down. Now, was the B-29 the basically looked like it was made out of stainless steel? Was that the is that the shiny one? Yeah. That they used to drop the atomic bombs? Right, right. Okay. 
As you guys know, I'm not like up to speed on all my aircraft nomenclature. I actually have a photo of one hanging up here in a studio that I got a couple years back for Christmas. That's why I kept loading my shoulder like, I think it's that one. <laughs> but I, <laughs> yeah. I really need to get up at the nomenclature of my, my um, air, yeah. air vehicles. That's anyway, so that's book number one. Interestingly enough, my book number one is aeronautical as well. This book was a Christmas gift to me called The Last Fighter Pilot. It was autographed by the author. However, it was intended to be autographed by the source material, Mr. Captain Jerry Yellen. Um, but sadly, during the time of this purchase, and it did come with a certificate, Mr. Yellen was in the hospital under the weather. And so far tonight, I've been reading quite well. So if you guys don't mind, I want to give you a, a brief little page out of here. And this is why. So this is called The Last Fighter Pilot because these guys were fighting in the Pacific. They were sent up on their last mission. And the rest will be uh, kind of revealed here momentarily. Fortunately, uh, fortunately for the rest of the world, the coup did not succeed. A group of senior Japanese officers talked to the insurgents off the ledge, convincing them that there was nowhere to go. But while the revolt ended, the war did not. And so, with the shoreline of the enemy territory coming into view, Phil was on his wing. Jerry knew it was time to go back to work. On Jerry's order, all the planes in the squadron dropped their external fuel tanks over the ocean, then started their familiar aerial trek over the great snow-capped peaks of Mount Fiji. As of yet... There has been no radio signal with the word Utah, which is a secret code for the mission's been scrubbed. As the Americans approached the Japanese capital, they began to identify targets. Within minutes, they swooped down over the airfields and attacked despite heavy ground fire. Tracer bullets flew up from the Japanese guns as the 78th, as the 78th made multiple passes over the targets. Field stayed right tight on Jerry's wing as, as instructed little precursor to this before this mission phil had one of those visions one of the sites we often hear about where oh, hey i'm not gonna i'm not coming back from this mission this is it for me so we hear this often and so jerry said hey you're my wingman stay right on my ass i will get you through this after strafing the last airfield jerry checked his fuel gauge and saw that he was still in good shape but one of the but when one of the pilots radioed that his tank had reached the 90 gallon mark the amount of the Mustang needs before, I'm sorry, the, the amount the Mustang needs for the returning flight, it was time to pull up and begin plotting a course back to Iwo Jima. Jerry looked over at Phil, who was still on his wing, and gave him the thumbs up. Phil looked back and returned the gesture. Confidence. Maybe it was working. With the battle over, with the battle over Tokyo complete, Jerry set his course back out to the ocean and banked to the south. The three other Mustangs and Jerry's flight uh, turned with him. A few minutes later, they approached the coast where they would be rendezvoused with the navigational B-29s. They neared a cloud cover in front of them. Often the case when approaching the, astro the astrospheric temperature in inversion near the coast, with Phil still right on his wing, Jerry led the four Mustangs into the cloud bank. Flying at altitude about 7,000 feet, Jerry focused his eyes on the navigational instrument as the, interior, as the interior of the white puffy clouds blocking his view and everything else. But when the Mustang emerged out of the other side of the clouds, the devastation real, reality soon surfaced. Phil was gone. 
Most likely he had been brought down by anti-aircraft bullets fired into the clouds. There was no sign of him. His premonition had come to pass. Jerry was devastated. When he had landed at Iwo, when he had landed at Iwo Jima, meanwhile, he learned something else. The war was over. The emperor had announced Japan's surrender three hours earlier while Jerry and his flight crew were still over Japan. The code word Utah had been broadcast to U.S. aircraft over the country, but the word had not reached the planes of the 78th until they had landed. It was a surreal feeling for Jerry as he climbed out of the plane and jumped down onto the aircraft, standing on a once bloody Pacific island. Now suddenly the world was at peace. First Lieutenant Phil Schlommenberg, at the age of 19, was the final known combat death of World War II. And to this day, at least as the writing of this book, he had the highest IQ of any pilot in the Air Force. Now this part will blow your mind. Um, let me find it real quick. I have it marked here. I just got to find it in the book. Do, 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 do. Sorry, my. When was the book written? This book was written in. I want to say. Oh, da, 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 da. This is back when I worked at the radio station. So about five or six years ago. Oh, fairly recent. Yeah, fairly recent. Um, hold on. There's a really. This part will just blow your mind. Um, oh, crap. Oh, here we go. Jerry stood too for Phil Schlomberg, whose death marked the end of the costliest war in human history. Phil's memory would be carried on not only by his fellow pilots, but by his niece, Melanie Salone, who researched his legacy long after his death, and by his two great nieces, Vanessa and Scarlett Johansson. Yes, that Scarlett Johansson. That was her great uncle, was the last person to die during World War II, and to this day has the highest IQ rating, at least as per writing of that book, of any pilot in the United States Air Force. Wow. That is a tremendous book, um, especially if you're into aviation. Um, check it out. And it's Pacific Base, too. It's called The Last Fighter Pilot. It's written by Don Brown and J Captain Jerry uh, Yellen. I'll just give you, actually, there's a fantastic photo of Captain Yellen on the back. Hmm. And so that is book reference number one for you all to check out if you haven't. And that's kind of something else Jeff and I are trying to do. We're, we're trying to put out some books out there that you may have not heard of. So please check out The Last Fighter Pilot. Jeff, your turn, sir. Yeah. Uh, this one actually stays with the aviation theme, uh, also in the Pacific. Uh, but again, another another war memoir, one that I really, really enjoyed. Uh, just a great read. Again, another tremendous pilot that became a tremendous writer. And this is called The Jolly Rogers, the story of Tom Blackburn and Navy Fighting Squadron VF-17, uh, otherwise known as Blackburn's Irregulars. Um, Tommy Blackburn was the squadron commander and... Uh, not only is this really uh, a really deep insight into oh the the combat in, in the Pacific in, in those earlier days down in the Solomons and um, some of that just absolute you can just feel the boredom just the mundane daily tasks and then all of a sudden it's highlighted by 
15 minutes of terror, right? I mean, that's just kind of, that's the, that's kind of the, the theme behind any combat memoir, right? They give you the nitty gritty of, you know, tossing rocks and just whittling away your time. And then all of a sudden it all breaks loose. Um, so not only that, um, and that, that gritty, you know, uh, air to air combat mission, but Tommy Blackburn was an incredible leader. I really feel like anybody that's in a leadership position or is vying for a leadership position, not just in the military, but civilian life as well. You know, if you're if you're facing a promotion at work, you're going to have a few people under your command. Read read Tommy Blackburn's stuff because he's an unbelievable uh, combat leader. He's an unbelievable um, just just somebody that I really look up to because he was uh, he was definitely one of the. Uh, what's the best way to put this? He, he, he was a man's man, right? He, sure. he didn't see himself as I'm the commander and this is how it is because I'm the guy in charge. He was definitely on the level of his, you know, the guys that followed him in combat and, uh, you know, crazy things happen. And he even, um, you know, talks about he's, he's chasing a zero into a cloud bank and his wingman, who was actually the XO of the squadron, uh, is sees this happen, so the XO kind of comes around in position to get a beat on the zero, and the zero comes out of the cloud bank. The XO fires the guns. Tommy Blackburn runs right <laughs> into the path of the bullets and takes some damage right underneath the cockpit in his Corsair from his own XO. And even how he handles that is is a great lesson. So read it. You know, that kind of reminds me. I, mean, I think we've talked about this before, but naval battles. When you have the air cover, you got dog fights going on, you got salvos flying back and forth from each navy ship, and you're you're in a dog fight, the enemy planes come down low, they might be trying to strafe a ship or drop a, a bomb or even maybe a torpedo, and you're falling right on his tail. That enemy's flying into our fire, but you're right behind him. You're you're like okay, not only not only are you worried about someone on your tail, but you're basically flying through your friendly fire trying to take this guy out. Because at that point, it's just guns all over the place. I think last week um, Henry and I were talking about I actually did a barrel count on the Navy vessels and you know the, the amount of firepower coming from each vessel, and that's just a lot of them like a, you know anywhere between fifty to one hundred and fifty different barrels, and that's just a lot of lead being thrown around, and you're you're flying down there right too. You're you're right in it as well. And obviously there's no way to tell, but I can guarantee you when a lot of those planes landed and they're counting bullet holes, I'm sure quite a few of them came from our our gear too and in some of those close knit battles. Absolutely. And I think, you know, that's probably the two things and we've discussed this before where especially a navy pilot and the men on the ship, that's the one thing they had in common is both of their battle stations, especially if you're on a submarine, very limited exit strategies, let's just say, and both of them, especially if you're fighting the Pacific, you're going to end up in the ocean if you're lucky to survive, and then that's a whole nother battle right there. And there's maybe that's, maybe one day we need to do an episode on, on the guys who got shot down and the turmoil of surviving that, but then finding yourself on a raft, and <laughs> where do I go from here? Because that in and yeah. of itself is is craziness. Book number two for me, we're going to stay with the theme. Um, we did not discuss books or themes. 
I've mentioned this one in the past. Uh, we actually had the author on, and when we post this episode, I'll post a link to the episode where we had Mr. Gregory A. Freeman on the show. And this is Forgotten 500. Um, it's air-themed, but it takes place on the ground, I'll, and I'll give you the synopsis off the back. This is the untold story of the men who risked all for the greatest rescue mission of World War II. And this is a different, interesting book, too, because it takes place in a theater that we don't think much about during World War II. During the bombing campaign over the Romanian oil fields, hundreds of American airmen were shot down in Nazi-occupied Yugoslavia. Local Serbian farmers and peasants risked their own lives to give refuge to the soldiers who awaited rescue. In 1944, Operation Hayyard was born. I'm sorry, uh, Halyard was born. The risks were incredible. The starving American in Yugoslavia had to construct a landing strip large enough for C-47 cargo planes without tools, without alerting the Germans, and without endangering the villagers. And the cargo planes had to make it through enemy airspace and back without getting shot down themselves. Suppressed for more than half a century due to politic political reasons, the full account of the unforgettable story of loyalty, self-sacrifice, and bravery is now being told for the first time ever. The Forgotten 500 is, a, is gripping behind-the-scenes look at the greatest escape in World War II. And you say, politics? What's the political aspect? What you'll learn reading this book is in Romania, particularly Yugoslavia at the time, there's a civil war going on uh, versus the communist and uh, the people of Yugoslavia who didn't want to live under communist rule. And what you also learn in this book is when the forming of the OSS, I believe it's the OSS, I need to get that right before I say this, um, State Department, yada, yada. yeah, the OSS. When they were forming the OSS and they were looking for operators and people to fulfill, plan, and man these missions and operate the OSS, your political views weren't taken into account. Obviously, if you were a, a vocal Nazi, that'd be one thing, but anything else. And so there was a lot of communists working in the OSS. And as you can imagine, if you have a political ground war, civil war going on, and you have a communist group trying to take over Yugoslavia, and the people trying to fight for the freedom, people at the OSS who are pro-communist might not do too hip to allow a rescue that's trying to be organized where the people who are doing most of the rescuing are pro-freedom, and some of them are pro-communist, but at the end of the day, if you're pro-communist, you wouldn't want all the glory to go to the pro-freedom people. And so there was a lot of effort to get this operation off the ground all while the Civil War was going on. And as you heard, they had to build a landing strip with really no tools other than shovels and, you know, they had to cut down some trees, remove the rocks, till land, and not be noticed by the Germans. And, oh, by the way, very little food up there. And the poor Yugoslavian peasants basically would give up a portion of their family's rations to feed these airmen. And as you can tell by the title near the end before the rescue, there was 500 of them in this area. That's a lot of mouths to feed, especially when you're up in the mountains with very little farmland in the middle of a civil war. Um, it's a very, very good book. Um, you'll learn a lot about 
that area going on in Romania and Yugoslavia at the time. And you'll learn a lot about the OSS and um, the tremendous story. You know what it reminds me of in modern day? The Lone Survivor. Did you ever see that? Read that book, the Marcus Luttrell story? Oh, yeah. Very reminiscent of that. You know, he's out there doing a mission. He's the only one left. The people in town risked their lives hiding him, moving him from place to place, feeding him, bringing him back to health. Very reminiscent of that. The, you know, the people in these villages finding these airmen as they parachute down. The, the Germans are looking for them. They see the parachute. They know they shot the planes down. They saw them come down. And much like Lone Survivor, they're hiding them. But after months, there's 500 of them. And so it gets, it's, it's a real sticky wicket, you can say. But the, the whole planning, sending in OSS guys to formulate, plan, sneak out, go back, relay information, come up with the planning, coming up with the logistics, kind of lying about what you're doing with these planes because you got the pro-communists not wanting this mission to happen. It's a tremendous story, so I strongly suggest it. And as I said, um, when you're listening to this episode on the apps, whether it's Spotify or Apple Podcasts, Google, what have you, head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com. Click on the links for today's episode, and in that page we'll go back. Probably, we're talking maybe episode 24, 25. Gregory was one of the early authors on the show. And, you know, that's... That's not nothing. You know, when you first launch a podcast and you're trying to book guests, when you have a show that no one's heard of and you've had guests that no one knows other than some living history folk, to say, hey, I'll, 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 lend, you know, I'll come on your show and, and give your interview style a, a go. You know, shout out to Gregory for giving me a go back when no one who, who I was, what we were, and it was just me and me and a dream. So shout out to him. And real quick, before we get on to the next one, let's get the plugs in. While you're heading over to WTSPWorldWar2.com to click on that link to listen to the Gregory Freeman episode about the Forgotten 500, please click on the Patreon link, sign up, and subscribe. Uh, we have three plans. One's a dollar a month. There's two other ones in there. Want to go over those. We're, we're, we're more than happy than a dollar a month plan. We have started, and uh, sadly, Jeff just happens to miss the episode when we do the giveaways. We did the, we did the last giveaway for the Warbird coffee last week even though it technically is supposed to happen at the end of last month with the way the holidays laid in but anyhow we're going to continue to do giveaways and so please head over to wtspworldwar2.com click on the back the attack and i'll take you to patreon you can subscribe that goes a long way to help what we do now jeff if you don't mind moving that microphone out of the way sit up straight and poke your chest out there so everybody can see the fantastic display that is the new Good Scuttlebutt is meant to be shared shirt. That is now available on our website at WTSPWorldWar2.com. Click the merch link. Got the old school original. Can't really see it. It's the original WTSP shirt with the Marine Corps helmet. All of our shirts. This shirt's five years old. All the shirts that we've ever had up there is still there. Head over there. Use the um, promo code ILISTEN. That'll save you, you know, basically, I don't know, save you a couple bucks. Um, and you can support the show. Nice thing about Jeff's shirt, it is two-sided. So not only do you have the new logo on the front, but on the back you have the new logo as well. So it has the WTSP logo on the back. So you're getting twice the action for the same price. And uh, we have other shirts, jackets, hooded sweatshirts, coffee mugs. I know Jeff has a coffee mug. you got a coffee mug sitting right there. I have one too, but mine's green. and It'll blend in with the background, so it'll just be an American flag. Get you the WTSP World War II coffee cup up there. And much, much more. All that goes a long way. And if you haven't done so, the last plug of the day, 
doesn't cost you a thing. If you want to listen to us stream live, join in on the conversation every Monday at 9.30 Eastern Time, please head over to YouTube.com. You can find our channel two ways. You can just type in D410media, all one word, and we'll come up. Or you can do the long original version of Digital 410. That's F-O-U-R-T-E-N. It's like 14 minus 1E. And that'll bring up the page as well. Or you can just go to our website, click on any of the YouTube videos, and it'll take you there. Please like, subscribe, share us with a friend, watch our videos, and it won't cost you a dime, but it may raise us a few pennies. And without any further ado, Jeff, book number three. Well, real quick before I get into the third book, uh, I've got uh, we got a message from a good friend of ours, and you know you never know who's going to come in, um, but we've got the one and only Scott Gibson, but most folks know him as Captain Haldane Ack Ack from the Pacific miniseries. He's on our channel, but he's trying to figure out how to connect so he can ask us some questions. Well, he so said hello, boys. So all he out. has to do is. Um, Basically, ask questions. Just type in that chat. He already said hello, boys, at the top of the show. So um, we can't. I mean, unless we're to send him a uh, Zoom invite now, if he wants to ask us a question, I'm I'm viewing the chat in real time. So you want to ask a, a question, please do, and we'll bring it up on the show. And we would love to have Scott on the show. So maybe we can book him to come back. Because I know he just went on a fantastic worldwide battleground tour, as we were talking about earlier. And we would love to get his his take on that. So I'll have you reach out to him after the show but yeah um mr scott gibson just go ahead and ask your question on youtube in the chat i'm watching now i'll relay it to jeff and we can answer accordingly right. but while he's so um, all right book number three I, this is i didn't have these in any particular order but yes another memoir uh another one where i was fortunate enough to to meet the author uh, and this one is really, I, I wish I could have been here last week when you guys were talking about the, uh, the picket, uh, ships, you know, to kind of deter kamikazes and pick them up ahead of time, because there's a lot about that in this book as well. And this is called D days in the Pacific with the U S coast guard, the story of lucky 13 by, uh, my good friend, Ken Wiley. Uh, now, unfortunately, Ken, uh, had passed on a few years ago. Um, but I was reading this book. Uh, I was in the middle of this, and I just I, I couldn't believe it. This is it's an incredible story. Um, he's just so brutally honest, and you you just see uh, a little bit of everything from the Coast Guard during World War II. But um, I was in the middle of it, and I was on my way back to Jersey um, for actually for my brother's wedding, and I saw where the author lived in Tennessee, and it was not too far from where I was going. So I reached out to him, and and I said, hey, I you know I'd love to love to meet you and shake your hand because this is, you know, this is incredible. I'm reading your story. And he said, absolutely. And he was just him and his wife just welcomed me into their home in beautiful mountain city, Tennessee. And he put me up in a nice B and B for the night. And I got to meet his best friend who was 78th infantry division, Battle the bulge. Wow. And yeah. So just hanging out in the living room with those two guys uh, was really incredible. But, you know, I think, uh, at least for me, when I first started reading this, I had no idea that the Coast Guard did what they did. I, I uh, wrote that on my list because I was going to bring that up. Thank you for bringing that book up because when we think World War II and branches of the military, the Coast Guard is clearly overlooked. Right. Oh, Absolutely. what do they do? They just they were just shipping containers. You know, were they just logistic? You know, no one knows <laughs> nope. except for Jeff. Jeff knows now, and he will tell us. 
Yeah. So, and you guys should read it so you can know too. So Ken was in the Coast Guard. He it's really interesting uh, seeing how uh, his basic training was like I don't know, like two weeks <laughs> in Florida of all places um, during but, hurricane you know, season. <laughs> right, right. No, this is this was in I think 1943. So Ken lost his older brother. Uh, his his older brother was uh, you know heavy bomber. In, in, in European campaign, was shot down, killed in action. So Ken joins up, and I can't remember exactly what prompted him to get into the Coast Guard. Um, but yeah, very abridged version of training uh, in, in Florida, just a couple weeks long. He's going over on a ship, and he's made at the ripe age of eighteen. He is the coxswain of an LCVP. Wow! From Lucky Thirteen, which was the APA Thirteen, which I think that was the Arthur Middleton. I, I can't remember. But the first 25 APAs, you know, those were those were converted uh, cruise liners, right? Those were actually converted civilian ships, those first 25. So he talks about life on these group transports and just kind of the logistics of uh, how many LCVPs were assigned to a troop ship, a transport ship, and kind of that taxi service of, you know, 25 to 35 guys hops in your LCVP, right? They go down the ladder push them on, you know, come back, get the no another group. And it, it was something like it took about an hour to land a thousand guys, you know, which is really ridiculously fast. If you think about that, uh, getting guys from the transport ship, you know, which is you're beyond the line of the uh, departure there, you know, out of, out of fire, out of range and getting a thousand guys on the shore. So really interesting stuff. His first of seven invasions in the Pacific that he made Driving an LCVP was quadrilling. Um, But, yeah, you get to hear these guys getting strafed by zeros in this plywood ship, punching cork everywhere and wooden dowels to stop the holes. You'll hear of an invasion where the uh, he drops the ramp, cable snaps. He has no way to bring the ramp back up. So, of course, you can't just turn around and start driving forward. No. You're just going to go for the drink. So, literally backed his way all the way back <laughs> and we all know life isn't like the dukes of hazard reverse is only geared so much you're not gonna <laughs> you're not getting into fourth you know you're not gonna get to the high end of your motor in reverse it doesn't work that way well it's funny you bring that up so the higgins you know these lcvps they actually were geared just as high in reverse as they were in forward there was a yeah so at the helm and he, and he talks about that in the book as well You've got WOT wide open throttle forward, and you've got WOT in reverse, and they could really boogie either way with that big uh, with that big motor inside of there. So I'm actually looking at a 3D rendering of a um, LCVP, and now that you say that, the back end is shaped a little more rounded than the front. So it probably, if it had wide open throttle reverse, it probably actually went faster backwards than it did forward because <laughs> the rear end of it's a little more, it's not completely flat like that landing ramp. It actually has beveled corners. So it may have actually went faster um, with the, despite the fact that the engine's in the back, so it's a little heavier now in the, the new front. But right. aerodynamic wise, or I guess, hydrodynamic wise it probably didn't travel too shabbily in reverse other than yeah. having to stand over like this <laughs> looking over your shoulder much, the whole time yeah it's it's really cool <clears throat> you had a crew of i think four you know there's a gun tub there there's a motor machinist man your, your mechanic and he's at the helm and every now and then they would switch off and 
they really i mean again there's the there's the terror and then there's the oh let's go see what's down in this lagoon and they go way down and you know these are very shallow drafting boats right that's what they're made for so they get back there and they get into some trouble and they get beached somewhere and they got to back off and their Japanese rifle fire and bamboo fire coming out of the jungle. And they got to get out there in their swim trunks basically and push this thing off the reef and get back in. And it's just a fresh look on, um, you know, just what it was like, you know, when we see LCVPs, we probably think saving private Ryan and all these gray steel doors going down and guys hopping out. And that's where the story ends on the LCVP, right? They're on the beach they back away and it, who cares? But not only a fresh look on what it was like to be on an LCVP, but again, a fresh look on the United States Coast Guard at war in the Pacific during World War II. So another great memoir that I recommend. Well, and you said something very important. We see these and they're painted gray and we just assume ah, they're, they're completely made of steel. And no, <laughs> they had some armor on them, but there's a lot of plywood on those. Um, and so that just goes to remind you that uh you know keep it simple stupid keep it light and keep it affordable oftentimes meant that uh yeah there wasn't so much too much armor involved the next book i'm not going to get too heavily involved with just because the subject matter might cause our video to vanish off of youtube um we're gonna we're gonna go the other direction here so hard that you might go and bleed the next book i want to talk about is by mr G uh george victor let me get the um, copyright on this guy. This book was given to me, and I don't do a tremendous amount of reading on this individual just because of, well, who he is and what he did, but I think it's uh, important that uh, particularly this subject matter that we, you know, you got to know your enemies. Um, and so, okay, first paperback edition was in 2000. The first copyright the hardback version was in 1998, and that is Hitler the pathology of evil. If you want at least George Victor's hypothesis into the evil that was Hitler and what got him to that point, this is a very interesting book. Um, it starts off in his childhood about how his father was, I don't know the German vernacular for it, but basically he kind of was head of the local police-ish of the village he grew up in and his mom had a kind of a, I don't want to say Munchausen by proxy, but she definitely had an illness where according to this book in her eyes, young Hitler can never do wrong, but in his father's eyes, he can never do right. And it just goes through the whole thing of his time in world war one, how he was, he swore up and down and he, he, got chlamydia from a Jewish prostitute, even though every doctor ever looked at him and said it never happened, his delusions. But if you want a interesting hypothesis into what made him the evil bastard that he turned out to be, um, check out Hitler's The Pathology of Evil. It talks about his time in prison, how he came to power. You know, a lot of people think that he was like the founder of the Nazi party. No, the Nazi party was around and he just kind of, discovered them and realized his his form of insanity and rhetoric went pretty far over there and got him some power and and uh the actual heads of the nazi party thought mistakenly they could control him oh we'll just well let's get him into power we'll control him didn't work out that way and the rest is history but um i'll just 
give you the back. Um, this is the chilling psychological, I'm sorry, in this chilling uh, psychological history, George Victor, a distinguished psychotherapist with a long experience in evaluating personality disorders, examines Hitler's profoundly disturbed psyche. He then explains how Hitler made the entire nation help with his advanced in a dark, deeply personal agenda and how many of Hitler's disastrous war decisions satisfied his psychological needs. Dr. Victor draws surprising new conclusions about the man who came as close as any to being the, uh, the embodiment of evil. Kind of, there's also areas, too, it kind of shows how extremely unoriginal he was. His whole mustache and the hair came from a painting that he loved, they actually have the painting in here. Um, and the name of that painting, because as you guys probably know, he was a failed uh, artist. He failed out of art school. Watercolor was his medium of choice. Um, but there's actually a picture in here. Yeah, let's see here. It's basically, um, it's black and white. You guys wouldn't be able to see it. But it's, it's, it's kind of a guy in a cloak. It looks like some dogs running around. And the... Um, the name of the painting is called The Wild Chase by Franz von Stuck. depicts the god Wutan as a berserker. Hitler was said to have copied his mustache, hairstyle, and orth orthical stylings from the paintings. And so, like, we all know the whole Heil Hitler salute he stole from Mussolini. He stole his haircut and his mustache and his, his presentation from here. And there's actually... Um, George Victor makes a a weird leap, if you will, about a young Hitler's possible, we'll just say, sexual proclivities that you wouldn't kind of expect from him after all the rhetoric that he spit. But one thing that I took away from this book, and this isn't in George Victor's words, this is just kind of what I took away after reading all the evidence, it seemed to me like Hitler suffered from an extreme bout of self-loathing. And a lot of the policies and procedures he put in place, if they were in place before he was born or grew up, he, in fact, would become a victim of those same policies. It's almost like he was trying to prevent himself or another version of himself ever coming to fruition. It's it's a pretty crazy book. And so not to bring things down, but once again... In the topic of World War II, there's an enemy, and if you want to know why this whole thing happened, and a hypothesis by a psycho, a, you know, psychiatrist on uh, what brought him to do the insanity and atrocious things he did, if you have a stomach for it, it don't get too gruesome into you know the Holocaust camps. This is a more of just a look into the evil that is Hitler. Um, here's another fact: Did you know he's a vegetarian, like hardcore vegan? The guy would sit around and watch these horrible videos of experiments being conducted on live humans. But if you showed him a picture of a, a dog dying or animal dying, he'd get irate. He'd often call people in his realm during dinners if they were eating meat. He'd call them uh, corpse eaters. According to George Victor, he was a, a, a diehard vegan. The guy just had all kind of weird proclivities. So that's my last book. I know we went for a way out of left field but you know you gotta know your enemies and if you want yeah, no, if you're ever curious on what caused this 
this horrible, horrible person to do the crap he did. Yeah. There's an insight. Um, and I challenge folks, if we haven't already been canceled because you said Hitler so many times, uh, I challenge folks to Google uh, Hitler's paintings because to say he failed art school, I think, would is probably um gives people the wrong impression the guy was a magnificent artist and like i said in watercolor mm-hmm. um at that time big landscape guy yeah yeah landscapes and structures you know architecture like yeah um but uh vienna art school was kind of looking for something different and very very different in fact uh people like salvador dali were led into vienna art school where adolf hitler was not and if you're familiar with what salvador dali paints compared to yeah. the realism uh of of hitler uh you can see where he'd be a little bit bitter um because we appreciate artwork like dali now because it, it is what it is but back in the 30s you probably thought this was like what is this kid like four years old finger painting like what is this nonsense yeah. um but yeah it was just that surreal um oh, that art movement, you know, was just happening then, and uh, Hitler was just out of style, you know, artistically. So, uh, but I challenge people to look up his art because it's it's incredible. Well, one of the things he pointed out, which I was kind of heading around to, which we know that part of the people who got put in concentration camps were homosexuals. Well, in this book, drawing off of diaries from people he grew up with, apparently when he was going to art school, his best friend and roommate was a photographer. And they're, according to this book, and it's been a couple of years since I've read it, I, he either, the author either refers to letters and or diary entries of this friend where, where Adolf would fantasize about the two of them basically moving in together and growing old together. It was almost as if he was in love with this gentleman and was heartbroken and completely devastated when this friend went out and got married. And so, once again, it's just... There's a lot of stuff that he did when he got into power that's like, as I said before, it's almost like if those rules were in place when he was younger, it would have affected him greatly in a negative way. So that's what I meant when I said that. Here's another example. No proof of it. One of his insanities. He swore up and down that his mother was not his biological mother. And his warped, deluded self and preservation perception of history he had convinced himself why i don't know that his biological mother was actually the young jewish housekeeper that his father had hired to take care of his house he he convinced himself you know the town doctor said it wasn't you know birth certificates all that said the mother was his actual biological mother but let's say hypothetically he was correct that his father had an affair with the the young jewish housemaid one of the first laws he passed when he got into power was jewish girls between the ages of 13 and 30 i.e childbearing years were not allowed to work in the home of gentiles so there's one of those things if he truly believed that he was born because his father cheated on his mother with a jewish girl well if this law was in place before he was born and if that was the truth that'd be another thing that would have prevented him whoever have been born if that law was in place. So that's kind of one of those things I'm alluding to when I'm saying, well, if the laws that he came up with in place. So that's where I kind of get to all that. Let's see here. Uh, Tall tales from Taco Bell. Disturbed, that is an understatement. Absolutely. 
Mr. Bell. Um, disturbed is definitely an understatement. I just, on this particular show, I try to keep my vulgar language to a minimum, so I'm trying to use semi-positive adjectives to describe a very, very awful person. So, yes, um, that is that. Before we wrap it up, since we've done an extended version of what you're reading, uh, we're going to do something we haven't done in a while, and I'm going to ask Jeff, what you collecting? <laughs> what I mean by that is um, I had a, I was looking around a podcast studio, and I saw a piece of my library, my World War II artifact library, that came to me in a weird, bizarre way. A lot of the stuff we find at antique stores or at living history events or, if you're like me, on eBay, but every once in a while, something literally falls into your lap. And before I show mine, I want to ask Jeff if we can see his. <laughs> Do you have anything in your collection that just kind of fell in your lap outside of the 3,000 books that people keep dropping off of your front porch? <laughs> yeah, you know, that was really hard to narrow down to one thing. I really thought, like, what is the one artifact that's like, this is my prized possession, and I'd be honest. Well, not so much prized possession, but came to you in a weird way. Ah. <sighs> Well, that's even harder because, I mean, I've got – there's a lot of stories like that. So I'm just going to narrow it down to this one because – I guess because there's some mystery involved in it. We'll just say that. Um, so this artifact, I, I remember it a lot from my childhood, and I'm going to kind of pivot the camera here so you folks can kind of see what I'm talking about. And um, we've, you've seen this in different things that I've done, um, you know, through museum work. Um, but it's it's this model, the scratch built model of the USS Arizona. Now it's hard to judge uh, you know, on the camera here, but that thing is six feet long. So that's a good size model ship, right? It's like a size uh, of a large sub from uh, um, Jersey Mike's. Uh, right, exactly. <laughs> if it isn't freshly sliced, it ain't Jersey Mike's. Uh, but. <laughs> No, so I remember this because this was part of my grandfather's collection. Right? He was a he was a huge collector, antiques, toys, cars, everything you name it. Um, and some of the things he collected had some kind of military value. You know, my great grandfather served in the Navy for about forty some years from you know Spanish American War, World War One, and World War Two. So uh, I think my grandfather always kind of had the um, you know looked out for different naval things because of his father that served so long in the Navy. Um, but the interesting story with this and, and the little bit of the mystery that's shrouded in it is, um, you know, a lot of collector, a lot of other collectors knew my grandfather, right? He was kind of really world known for some of the things he had in his collection. Um, some of it is still on public display in, uh, Walt Whitman's, one of Walt Whitman's kind of, not his summer home. It's a place that he did visit, um, that's up in New Jersey, uh, called the Stratford Whitman House. So the, it's called uh, Al's Attic of Toys, right? Al was my grandfather. So some of his stuff is on display at the Whitman House. But um, this had a little note down inside. And like I said, this is all scratch built. It's balsa wood and some cardboard, metal tubing um, of the Arizona. But down inside, if you pull the, the, the forecastle off, down inside the hull, there were some notes about um, uh, Malcolm Forbes, from the famous Forbes uh, family. Mm -hmm. Now, Malcolm Forbes, also from New Jersey, was a antique <laughs> antique toy boat collector. And I think you can probably Google this somewhere, but this is just, again, bits and pieces of stories throughout the family and what I remember from here and there. Uh, but he liked to collect 
these scratch built model ships that dated from you know late 19th century early 20th century uh these are not plastic model kits that you buy you know in a hobby shop these were scratch built taken from blueprints and i did some measurements on this and like i said it's about six feet long and i think the arizona was about 600 feet long and so this for i think this comes to like one one hundredth scale um, but I'll, like I said, I'll, I'll give you kind of an idea of how large this thing is. And I'll kind of pull closer to the camera too, so you can appreciate some of the, um, kind of that scratch built, um, you know, the, the techniques that were used to create such a nice model. And as Jeff slides across the room to pick up this model, the, the interesting thing about scratch built models is Jeff was saying is this wasn't a manufactured piece. And so this kind of represents two bygone eras. You have the era of guys who like to build models that didn't exist in a manufactured form, but these guys were also woodworkers. If you didn't have skill in woodworking, you were not going to be able to produce this thing. As Jeff said, oftentimes these things were built by looking at blueprints, photos, or oftentimes, as World War II goes, um, the guys who served on these vessels. And so not only do you have a World War II pretty good, authentic, scratch-built model, but you have something that's literally a masterpiece work of art. It's crafted by somebody who had wood-making skills, oftentimes made in their home wood shops, their garage, their barns, on you know their band saws or table saws, or even they get out the chisel and manufacture their own pieces by hand. And as you can imagine... You know, your store-bought plastic model might be something that takes you a month or two to build. A lot of times, these scratch-built models took years, and you want to talk about a passion project. So to have the skill to make something like that that didn't exist, but also have the much-required skill of woodworking, that sort of artifact falls into two collectibles. You're collecting, or actually three. You're in a scratch-built, you're in a World War II, or you're into... What some people refer to as, um, oh crap, what would the American Pickers call that? Um, anyhow, uh, there's a style of, anyhow, handcrafted, you know, works of art, folk art. That's the word I'm looking for. So it kind of falls into the folk art category as well. That's a beautiful piece. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, it's kind of, I remember my grandfather having it when I was a kid. I remember admiring it. And, uh, you know, somehow it survived the estate sales after he passed and nobody really wanted it. Of course, family didn't even know what the heck, what, what price do you put on something like that? Now, we don't know for sure if it was owned by Malcolm Forbes or not. I don't know. Um, I'm assuming just based on what on the notes that were kind of kept inside of it. I mean, there's a reason those papers are in there, um, but we don't really know. And uh, just like I said, just happened to be up there visiting a few years ago and I asked if that was still around. They said, yeah, nobody, nobody wants it. You know, if you'd like to have it, you know, absolutely. I said, oh, gosh, I would, you know, I'd be honored to have something like that from my Gramps' collection because, again, I remembered it so vividly. And, and number two, in the line of work that I'm in now gives me an opportunity to, to share it, right? So, um, you know, maybe, like I said, maybe not a real unique way that I, that I like you said, that's something that fell into my lap and a unique story there, but um, – I think for me, it's more of an all-encompassing. My grandfather was really, you know, really one of the big people that got me interested in World War II at such a young age. 
and to have something from him and you know it's it's unique right like you said this is a one of a kind there's nothing else like that exactly like that it's not an m1 grand right you know and what there wasn't five million of these produced so i'm really really happy to have it and, and of course happy to share it with uh with the folks watching and and uh, hopefully our listeners will go back and and check it out mr taco bell said he's uh He's currently collecting sands from around the world from the worst battles. And he also said shell art is awesome. Now, my item is something that was mass-produced and manufactured, but it did kind of me in a weird way. When I was working in radio as a producer for an afternoon show, one of the uh, program directors from the, um, the pop contemporary station came over because he was showing Stan because we were talking about old-school toys. And Stan grew up in the uh, 50s and 60s. And they were talking about the original, um, not air hockey, but like the football, the football game with the vibrating table. Remember the old, just it was way back, but they they remade versions and it was featured in TV shows. But the original, like the home board football game, it was literally like a metal table, and you had football cardboard players that would stick on the plastic platforms, and basically just sat on this vibrating table, and the guys would just kind of either inch forward or inch backwards it was very rudimentary but he brought in this toy football field to show stan and i couldn't help but notice the container in which he used to collect to maintain and not to lose the football players now one of the problems that we face as world war ii living historians is we put all this time, energy, and effort to make sure our uniforms are correct, make sure we have the right period canteens for the thing we're displaying, we get the correct tents. And then as you walk through the bivouac, you see tarps with modern-day modern coolers underneath them or people's modern-day stuff they're trying to hide. And so one of the things I like to do is try to find World War II-era containers, ammo cans, crates, what have you, so that I can store my modern-day stuff in while I'm camping in someone's field for three days because you need your contact solution, you need your battery chargers, your toothbrushes, and all that stuff. But he had his figurines in this. This is the M17 ammo can, which I have a lot of ammo cans, and I had never seen one of these in real life. It actually has a webbing handle on it. Do you know what? particular piece of firearm this was used for uh my guess is a 50 caliber machine gun you are good sir the m17 ammo can also known as the m17 ammo chest was a metal container designed to hold 50 caliber ammunition for the m2 browning machine gun and other similar weapons it was used by the united states military during world war ii and beyond the m17 can was a rectangular shaped and made of steel with a Hinged lid with a rubber gasket. Sadly, this one does not have the gasket. Providing a watertight, airtight seal to protect ammunition from moisture and debris, the lid can be securely closed using the metal latch up front, as you guys can see here. The ammunition cans were typically painted olive drab green, which was the standard U.S. military equipment during World War II. The cans were stenciled with the marking indicating the type of ammunition stored inside, such as Cal 50 or Cal uh, 50 BMG. The M17 ammo can was the essential part of the logistics and supply chain of the 50 cal ammunition during the war. Interestingly enough, it goes on to say today the original M17 ammo cans from World War II are sought out by collectors, enthusiasts, and, and military memorabilia collectors. And so I looked at him. I said, you, you know what you got there? He said, a box. 
I said, does that thing have any sentimental value to you? Nope. Um, I was like, as you know, I'm kind of into World War II stuff. He's like, yeah. I was like, how much do you want for it? He's like, nothing. I just don't want to lose my cardboard football, guys. I said, I will happily bring you a modern-day ammo can tomorrow. And they, so I came home, went in my garage, took all my 9 millimeter ammo, my two, two, three rounds, and just kind of threw it somewhere and got a modern-day ammo can, went and made a fair trade on this. But this is the only one I've ever come across. Sadly, the webbing is starting to tear because it does have basically metal flaps at the top, and the webbing is just kind of threaded through it, and it's starting to tear, much like your slings on the um, EE8 telephones. And so, um, be honest with you, that's probably one of three actual air-correct ammo cans that I've come across down here in Florida. I mean, you can find them on eBay, but once you pay the price of shipping, it's just not worth it. And so there's not a ton of air-correct, you know, ammo cans down here. So that's one of the few that I actually have. And so um, I actually don't take that one to Living History events. But, yeah, see, I don't, ha I don't have a single one of those. I have the red, I think, T2 ammo can that I found at an antique store, which has the locking hinges on the side. But because those locking um, swivels would get mucked up with grease and crap, then you couldn't open the can. They quickly discontinued those. And so, but yeah. Yeah, this is the only one I thought was ever made. Yep. I've never seen that M17, M17? Yeah, the M17. Yeah, there's no, there's no bevel on it. There's like the one you have, I think, is the one that kind of, it has the little, yeah, don't have like the little thing where you can slide it on the edge of the on the tripod or whatever to hold it in place. But okay, no, that's that's a more modern one. What you're thinking of there? But yeah. that one has a removable top, doesn't it? Okay, it has the side locking. Yeah. Yep. Um, sadly, I couldn't, I couldn't find the manufacturer date on this guy. But yeah, it's. it's you know, I feel like I've seen that style, that hasp, and I probably never thought about it. I feel like I've seen those up on mounts on the top of Sherman's. Yeah, it may very well. Probably. Um, let's see. Yeah. The, the cans were designed to be durable, withstand rigorous combat conditions, yada, yada, yada. Stacked on vehicles, ships, and aircraft, ensuring steady supply of ammunition to the frontline units. And so, yeah. So that's one of the more rare ammo cans that I have. Um, you know, I got a lot of other cool stuff laying around, but I just the kind of the fun point of the fun point of that one is, oh, I found it in an antique store. No, I actually was at work one day and a guy brought it in as a container. He's had it. Let's see, I'm back then I was thirty seven. He was probably forty two and he had that can in his possession. He'd been storing his his NFL guys in it since like nineteen eighty four. So it had been carried around his entire life and it had no sentimental value to him to him it was just a piece of tupperware so i quickly and for the longest time it was actually sitting here in my podcast studio before i put this console in here my monitor would sit on it i had the can upended on top oh the strap just broke that sucks uh. i had it upended like this so it was the same height and my monitor sat on it yeah literally the strap just broke as i went to pick it up off my floor and the crazy thing is the strap was folded through and it has two rivets in it so the the straps actually riveted to it but that sucks yeah it just broke after all these years oh well the rivet the rivet broke or the strap the itself? strap the where it folds it finally uh, just the metal uh, cut through it you can see where there's rust on it and it's just yeah. been, been, there's a sharp edge on there you know this stuff wasn't meant to last 80 years and so 
Sharp Edge, yeah. Standard Web Gear, and Bob's Uncle. <laughs> Let's see. Um, trying to read comments. The stupid heart's in the way that YouTube puts on here now. Yes, it was mess. My buddy had... Oh, see, do-do-do-do. Shell art is awesome. Yes, it was a mess. My buddy had one of those football games. Yeah. So he was... Uh, Taco Bell's talking about his buddy had one of those football games. And they literally just vibrated. <laughs> You're like, oh, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> uh, you should see the box, the, the old comic, that he has his old comic books in. I'd be interested in seeing that. And so if you guys have a piece of uh, memorabilia that came to you in a weird, bizarre way, or maybe just a piece of memorabilia that you have that's rare, that you haven't seen too much of, we would be happy to hear about it along with any other comments, questions, suggestions you have. Please email us at mailcall at WTSPWorldWar2.com. And as we said, I think two or three episodes ago, we are now posting those mail calls on our website as if we're an old school magazine from back in the day. And so you guys can head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com. I think it's under the About Us link or Contact Us link for that matter. I can actually check here in real time. Because this is a relatively new area of our page. Contact us. Um, but those are there. Do, 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 do. Yeah. And so you can find it under the contact us page. And um, Jeff, do you have anything coming down the line? Any uh, appearances? Anything you want to get out there and spread the word about? Uh, yeah, I did one uh, on the 6th of June um, about... 45 minutes from here is a little town called Copper's Cove right outside Fort Hood. And um, there's a really cool uh, airborne uh, or paratrooper association. It's, 80, it's called the Centex Paratroopers. They're an 82nd Airborne Association uh, group that um, got to meet a lot of cool guys uh, from that group. They've they've come down to burn it before, uh, come to the museum out here. And they did a really cool fundraiser. It's a really neat idea. There's an old historic um, one-screen movie theater in Copper's Cove, and they rented it out on the night of June 6th, and they showed The Longest Day. Beautiful. And they sold, yeah, they would sell you know seats at $10 a, a head. That's actually uh, cheaper than modern-day movies. Right, yeah. And, you know, just to kind of raise a little money, I think, I don't know, it was like a 100 and some seats that they had in there at $10 a, a pop. And they had a little raffle, you know, you could win a little 50-50. And uh, so they asked, to, you know, if I could come out. And so myself and, and my son, Logan, he, he got dolled up in his in his um, Pathfinder uniform. And I just went with my Army, you know, uh, Army Wolves and we brought, we actually, there was a little area inside the theater that was just big enough for them to have a table, you know, with all their swag on it for Syntex paratroopers. And then I had a table set up and we had it covered in, in artifacts. I had sand from Omaha and Utah beach there and a couple of different books about D-Day and a bunch of combat gear, you know, sprawled out. And it was just cool. Just a cool invite, just a fun way uh, to spend the night of, uh, of the 6th of June watching a, an old movie like that on a big screen again was really cool. And, uh, they're going to do more. They're going to show bridge too far in September. Ooh, then, you weren't here last yeah. week, not to cut you off. When's the last time you've seen that movie? It's been probably two, three years ago. I just started watching it on one of the free streaming services. I, this is one of those Movies I sadly have to admit I've never seen. But we were talking about it last week, or the last live show we did. I was telling Henry, because Henry hasn't seen it since he was a kid. 
I told him, I said, I don't, I didn't see the whole thing, but I will say this, the jump footage in that movie, I told him, I didn't know if that was filmed as part of army training or if they actually filmed all that for that movie, but the jump footage of them coming out of those planes, all those parachutes, that's not CGI. The recreation of that jump and that footage, you can hear the guys breathing, you can hear them thumping on the ground because with the old style cameras, the jump footage alone in that movie is worth watching. It's amazing. I was just blown wow. away watching it in HD. You know, it's remastered on my TV and just watching the cameraman on the ground and all these real planes flying over and just the amount of, and I'm thinking modern day, it's like, well, obviously modern day, the planes aren't available. They would CGI all this in, but even if they were, I don't think they'd be able to shoot that because of the insurance required. If that was in fact shot for that movie and not some army training footage, because it didn't look like, you know, when you look at The Longest Day, you can clearly tell the original footage because it's black, it's grainy versus the the, the quasi-modern. But on A Bridge Too Far, the quality of the jump footage looked the same as the quality as the rest of the film pre-cursing that. So I was just blown away by the jump footage. I thought it was insane. And it was just a masterpiece. Yeah, I need. I definitely need to refresh. I mean, like I said, they're gonna they're gonna show it up there in September. Yeah. Uh, so looking forward to that. And then they're even gonna do uh, on the begin in the beginning of October. They're gonna show Black Hawk Down. So it'll be fun. I'll, I'll bust out my DCUs for that. And then in November, I think it's slotted to show uh, We Were Soldiers. So it'll be fun to get my non uh, impression out. For, for that one so now was the true title that we were soldiers once in young or was that the book title and they shortened it for the movie that's the book title yeah but it's the same um same story joe joe galloway's uh story remember the chicken they only showed it right before they jumped in the bridge too far they showed the british paratrooper with a chicken yeah. They make no reference to it, but they're inside the plane. The plane's shaking. The guys are doing like just like you see in Banner Brothers, where they're just kind of staring off. And you see a guy has a chicken <laughs> underneath his his reserve chute. Huh. That I'll have to go back and have to watch that again. That was real. Time. That was a a hat tip. In a bridge too far, nineteen seventy seven, a British paratrooper appears twice in the takeoff scene from England holding a chicken. This is the portrayal of the real Lieutenant Joseph Glover and his pet chicken Myrtle. Both of them dropped in Arnheim with the 4th Parachute Brigade in September of 18th and 1944. Um, not included in this post, but from what I understand, this wasn't the first jump that Myrtle participated in, but I don't think Myrtle survived the combat. But yes, that chicken that you see, that really happened. A British paratrooper did jump in with Myrtle the chicken. <laughs> so that wasn't just one of those quirky things they did in the 70s because everybody was all having a good time while filming the movie. No, Myrtle really <laughs> existed. And uh, just a little hat tip to uh, Myrtle the chicken. Uh. And I think that's going to wrap it up for this episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. I can say this part because Taco does all military history, so I'm not stepping on his Your favorite World War II based podcast, and we want to thank each and every one of you for uh, your continued support of what we do. Henry should be back next week. We'll all be here together with new topics, and who knows, maybe we'll have a surprise guest, but we want to thank each and every one of you for your continued support, and we will happily talk to you all next week. This has been a Digital 410 production. <laughs>